(laughs) I want you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Holy and gracious God, may your Holy Spirit give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that with the eyes of our hearts enlightened, we may know the hope to which Christ has called us, the riches of His glorious inheritance among us, and the greatness of His power for those who believe. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Revelation 21. I want to speak to you on this passage. Behold, I make all things new. This is not the first time I have used these notes in Gainesville. But it is a fitting time to use them again. Revelation chapter 21, it speaks of the new heaven and the new earth. The first time I ever heard this passage read was after I walked in to the waiting room at Permian General Hospital with Dr. Gordon and told my mother that my father was no more. And my pastor, Dr. H.A. Hanks, opened the Bible and began to read these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things passed away." And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these words, for they are faithful and true. Then he said to me, They are done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers, the sexually immoral persons, sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The covenant that I tell you about over and over again as people of covenant, a covenant theology, is the statement, I will be their God and they will be my people. It is over and over and over again. It starts in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. It is God's covenant. It is as marvelous what we call the covenant of redemption. His choice, His choosing, His Word. I want to tell you a story. I've already mentioned it before. But Richard Baxter was a very, very fine pastor in Puritan England in the 1600s. He is known for writing the saints' everlasting rest. His whole adult adult life was battling sickness after sickness after sickness. He was harassed by a constant cough, frequent nosebleeds. He had migraine headaches. He had digestive ailments. He had kidney stones and gallstones. He believed in supernatural healing. And it was said and recorded several times that he was supernaturally restored to fruitful labor because of God's direct intervention. One time it was observed he had a cancerous-looking tumor in his throat that vanished while he was in the pulpit preaching the Word of God, testifying of God's own mercy in his life. Yet his bodily suffering was with him to the end, and he records that from the age of 21 until he died, he never knew a day without physical pain. One of the, effect, one of the effects of this suffering was to make him intentionally and intensely conscious of how temporary his life is and how inevitable death 
is for himself. When he was 35, he was bedbound with a disease that he did not believe he would recover from. He began to meditate on the joys of heaven. And he said that in the, in the age to come, in preparation, because he focused on the hope of glory and began to write his thoughts. Today, all you have to do is turn on the television and you can see people who are looking for glory everywhere. Richard Baxter, poor, broke, broken down, was dying. And death would have been merciful to him had he died, but he did not. He, he lives today. Well, he's in heaven, of course. But he wrote in those great times of sickness. And to his surprise, he recovered. And from that time of focusing upon uh, heaven, he wrote one of the three most published books in the history of the world, The Saints' Everlasting Rest. The Saints' Everlasting Rest by Richard Baxter. I have some of Baxter's books. This one is called The Reformed Pastor. If anybody ever tries to tell me, which no one has, that they believe they're called to be a minister, they're called to be a pastor, before anything, I'm, and they are seeking my advice on that, they're going to read this book. This book absolutely makes me quake in my shoes. This has nothing to do with being reformed as a Calvinist. This is talking about the life of a pastor. This book is stained with my own tears. It's marked in some places I've had to highlight in black just because I couldn't take it. He was a good and godly man. When Baxter was about to die, he wrote this book. This is called The Practical Works of Richard Baxter at Christian Directory. I bet there are not six of these books in the state of Texas. And I want you to look at how small the print is. He wrote this book in six weeks before he died. This is the greatest book on Christian counseling that's ever been printed. And, it, and, and in here, you can, I have things that are highlighted. Like if you have a melancholy spirit, if you're a melancholy personality, you don't want to read what he wrote because he sets it straight about here are 36 passages and things about getting over being melancholy because it's sinful. I mean, or do you have trouble with pride? Are you struggling with humility? Uh, all kinds of things. This book is absolutely a wonder. It is not for loan. If you would like to have one, I'll find it for you. But I guarantee you, there, I haven't even found this in a theological library anywhere. And uh, he wrote this six weeks before he died. It's like 170, it's, a, it's called a uh, monograph. It's over 80,000 words. It's probably about 180,000 words. Baxter was extremely useful to the kingdom of God. And he was a man that made it because of where he looked and put his hope. Larry and I were having a good visit this morning. He was talking about the, he says one of the keys to his own longevity he believes is because he has a positive attitude. And, and I think that's true in a lot of other things. I think God's not done with him either. Uh, but he has a positive attitude. This man, dying, wrote a book like this that has never been changed. And see, these books have never been edited. They've never been revised. It's like the Westminster Standards or the Second London Convention. They've never been redone. The, what they wrote 600 years ago has stood the test of time because it's based not on man's opinion, it's based upon man saying this is what the Word of God is telling. Well, he recovered and he wrote, The Saints' Everlasting Rest, and this is what he had to say. If you would have light and heat, why are you not more in the sunshine? For want of this recourse to heaven, your soul is a lamp not lighted, and your duty as a sacrifice without fire. Fetch one coal, fetch one coal daily from this altar, and see if your offering will not burn. Keep close to this reviving fire, and see if your affections will not be warmed. He decided from that time on that he would spend 35, 30 minutes a day focusing on nothing but heaven. And I'm going to show you why that's a good idea. Number one, we are citizens of another age. We are citizens of another age. 
Just write down Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and hear these words. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Now that can either be for you an exhortation or a very severe rebuke. So let the Word of God do what it needs to do because this is the command of Scripture. Set your mind on the things above. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Verse 3, For you have died. You have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who was our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Our resurrection with Jesus Christ is so sure that it has virtually already happened. And constantly and, co and co consequently, we need to live in a constant consciousness that we are truly citizens of another age. We are, set, we are to set in our minds much of that age, the age to come, and not be conformed any longer to this age, but to be transformed, as the Bible says, by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. And that the renewing means to be conformed to the new age to come. And look what is said right here in verse 5. He says this from the throne. Behold, I am making. He's not saying I will make. He says, now, behold, I am making all things new. We are citizens of another age. Number two, you need to ponder the greatness of the age to come. You need to ponder the greatness of the age to come. Focus on the objective reality is what is coming for us in the age of our resurrection. Romans chapter 6 verse 5 says, If we have been united with Christ in death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Don't we want this to see some of what this will involve? It, it, it involves not only us, but the new creation. And, if, and I think we need to repudiate something. And I just say this as your friend and in the office of your pastor. We need to repudiate the notion that pondering the greatness of the age to come makes a person less useful in this age. We need to repudiate the, knowledge, the notion that pondering the greatness of the age to come makes a person less useful in this age. My cousin Joe... And a woman named Skeet both said this. They don't know each other. They're both uh, two very different types of people. But they're in the political fight. They're in the political realm. They know everything. They know it before the news knows it. And they have an opinion about everything. They know everything that Walmart's doing with their bathrooms and Target's doing with this. That's where they live. And I remember Skeet telling me one time, said, James, if you keep your head in the heavens like you do, you will be no earthly good. I repudiate that. And one day, I'm going to look at her in glory and I'm going to say, I told you so. And Skeet's tough. She's stronger than goat's breath. You're going to get in a fight, you want her with you. Joe, I don't know that he's going to make it. But he'll be told so too. This is where the mind belongs. You can sit at home and bemoan everything going wrong with you and live the days out and everybody will know you're wounded and your woundedness will smell like cancer. Or you can live your life and say, I'm going to do something with it the days I have left. I don't think you need to write a book, book this big. No one wants to read a book like this. But this is evidence of a legacy of somebody that had so much pain, so much sorrow, so much hurt, and his life was useful and is still being useful.
Make me a shower of blessing. Make me a channel of blessing, we sing. Do you believe it? That is the beauty of what I'm telling you. Whether you believe it or not, He is making it new now. You are citizens of another age and you as a believer must ponder the greatness of the age to come. Let me tell you this illustration. You will remember this from when I did it the last time. There are many Christians that live their life like this. I pastor them too that live like this. If somebody falls out of an airplane without a parachute and you don't have one, well, you're not going to go jump out after them. If a person falls out of an airplane without a parachute and you see it happen, you're not going to jump out of the airplane and go find that person, try to grab that person if you yourself don't have a parachute. You know why? It won't do any good. But that's exactly what some folks do. You're on a sinking ship and you're bailing water when it's time to abandon ship. You're constantly running after those who, who uh, you're never going to satisfy them. You're never going to please them. You're never going to make them happy. They're going to bring up... The, the, they're, they're mar- Sometimes they act like the devil's sibling and they accuse. You're not going to change them. So don't try anymore. Just stop and focus on heaven. Toxic people we are seeing in the news, specifically in the politics, the toxicity of human beings do not know how to behave anymore. There are things some of you say to me you wouldn't even say to your enemy. You wouldn't say to your dry cleaner. You wouldn't say to the garbage man. And it's wrong. It's not right. And it's a sinking ship. And you say, well, why don't you come around? I don't want to hear it. What the great philosopher said this, do not be around people that bring you down. You want to be around people that are going to lift you up. I asked a person a long time ago, I said, do you want me to come see you and listen to you complain or do you want my advice? I just listened to me complain because I'm not coming. Sorry. I'm going to put my head up in the sky. We all need to hear that. We all, need, we all know we have people in our families like that. Wounded people hurt people. But if you're going to live your life and be wounded, let your marriage be wounded, that's, then that's all you're going to be. Or you can embrace the wound and you can become wise. Because that's where wisdom dwells. It comes from pain. And that's how Richard Baxter wrote such a wise book. Well, if somebody jumps out of an airplane without a parachute, I'm not going to go after them if I don't have a parachute because two deaths are not better than one. But if you do have a parachute on, you might try one of those awesome rescue attempts. You might just give it a try and free fall like a bullet at 120 feet per second at terminal velocity to catch up with that helpless guy, grab a hold of him, pull the cord, and hope you actually are able it ends with this, with this beautiful story and this radical, sacrificial love. Paul says in Colossians 1, 4-5, We have heard of your love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This is the reason you should look on Christian brothers and sisters in Christ with joy. Because the hope of heaven... This should change the attitude you have towards those that are not perfect. I was talking to Sue Gordon the other day. She convinced me you will go to hell. And uh, she had a long talk with me and we were talking about the ministry of being their friend for 40 years. And she prayed. And she prayed and said something that I'm going to preach about when I get back. She prayed against those who traffic in the Bible. Those who traffic in the church. Those who traffic in the gospel. They're all 
light with no heat. They're clouds without rain. But the people of the living God may be suffering, may be sad, may be hurting, but it is only a moment because soon that citizenship to the other age is going to give way. When I was composing these, I was thinking about my friend Bill. Yeah, I want him back. I need somebody to bleed me out like he did. But I don't want him to come back and have to breathe off that machine. I don't, we, we've, we all watched him go down. And, and I think one of the reasons Johnny has done so well, besides that she has enormous faith and enormous love, was Bill is truly not suffering anymore. And when Bill went home, you know what the last thing he said to me? He drove up out here on the corner. He said, see you, Doc, and handed me his tithe check. I still have the check sitting over there in the office. It got deposited, but, but I still have it. See you, Doc. And he died that night. He never had another breathing problem again. It's an amazing thing. And he wasn't alone. He went home because his citizenship was in another place. We're so focused where we live, our freedoms. If you have not traveled this world, you have no idea the freedom you have here. None. You have no idea. Even what freedoms we think we're losing, you have no idea the freedoms we have. And the greatest freedom we have is going to be the one that's going to bring it down. Freedom of speech. But where this is being abused is, let me tell you something. My mother said something to me one time, and I want you to hear me. She said, James Truett, don't you say everything you're thinking. I want you to think about what that means. Just because you think it doesn't mean it needs to be said. You may think something about somebody else. You may bring an accusation against somebody else, but they don't know it. When you give mouth to it, you have become an offender and you have proven your sinfulness because a fool gives full vent to his anger and where there are many words, sin is always present. Where does that come from? Proverbs. So what would make a person do something like that? Because they're too worldly focused. So start looking up at the sky. Start looking up. Start looking up. So let me tell you four ways in which we're gonna, God's going to make all things new from this text. There's four ways God's going to make all things new from this text. Number one, it's going to be spiritually and morally new. It's going to be spiritually and morally new. It's not going to do it at the White House. He's not going to do it at the 2024 election. It's not going to happen. He's going to make all things spiritually and morally new. It is the greatest frustration of this age. It is a frustration as a pastor, as it is as a banker, or a lawyer, or a housemaker. The greatest frustration of this age is that we still live in sin. It is the greatest frustration... Romans describes this perfectly in chapter 7, verse 23 and 24. I delight in the law of God in my inmost part, but I see in my members another law at war with the law, uh, with war with the law of my mind. It's the same law of God, but the law of God condemns this corruptible flesh, but it is life to the spirit of the believer. When people say this and they say we don't need to be in the Old Testament, we don't have to keep the law, they are demonstrating their minds have not been renewed. They have not taken the step of maturity. They still need to be fed with milk because the law of God tells us, it shows us what God is like and what He has prepared for us. And the Apostle Paul says that the law in my mind is a good thing and it's at war with the law in my members, which is a bad thing. The law will always condemn the flesh, but the law, the law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ that we may be, the, that we may be part in pattern after Him and there is no place that's better demonstrated than the law of God. I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but in my members another law is at war with the law of my mind. This war is the most frustrating thing about life in this age. And it is particularly, listen to, it is particularly so for the children of God. For the children of God. We want to be holy and we fall short of the holiness 
we long for. We want to be legalists. We really do. We want to be legalists. We want to make sure everything is done right so everything gets checked off in the boxes and everything is done the way it's according. The problem is legalism always involves your own interpretation, your own opinion, your own work. This is a particularly different thing. We want to, we want to love, yet we say th- sinful things. We want, to be, uh, we want to worship God, and yet we feel cold. Yet we feel cold. We want to walk in peace, and yet we're filled with anxiety. We want to be pure in thought, and yet impurity constantly bombards our minds. There is some progress as the Spirit helps us with our weakness. Of course there is. But we long for this deliverance. We long for the idea and the fulfillment that one day we will sin no more. John's vision of the beautiful bride says that right here. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. God has promised in this text at the end of the Bible He will make all things new. We will be made spiritually and morally new. And this is a picture of the church prepared and beautified for her husband Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what this means. When God makes all things new, He makes the church, the people of God, spiritually and morally beautiful, comparable and relative to His Son. Look at what it says in verse 9. Of, Let's see. Yes, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who have the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So at the wedding, a year ago and a half ago, Care Grace and, and Mike's wedding, there was this moment. I didn't know this thing started. I, di- I didn't know you did this. I didn't, but it, it's called the first look, I guess. Maybe, I don't know, something like that. But there was a moment where after... Care Grace got all decked out and all the photos were taken. And Mom and Truett had gone in. There was the moment before the ceremony that I was taken in to see her. And I told them that when that happened, you make sure you film it, and you film my expression and everything about what happens because I want to see it. Because it's going to be the closest thing I will ever understand to this passage right here. And wow, was it a sight. When the doors flung open up there, and it was just my family and the photographer, and I beheld my beautiful daughter. That is not even a scintilla comparable to what it will be like when we are presented to Jesus Christ. We will be so absolutely spiritually and morally pure we will be at that moment as He is. Come and let me show you the bride in the Spirit. And in the Spirit He carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, the same image of verse 2, and having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewels, like jasper, clear crystal. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. When God makes the bride ready for the Son... The way He does it, are you ready? He does it by giving us His glory. Write that down. The way that God makes us ready for the Son is He gives us His glory. People think they have the glory now. The Bible says explicitly, God will not ever share His glory until you get to here. He calls us the bride. And to be a bride fit for Christ, we must be glorified as He is. And the Bible has promised 
He who is justified will be glorified. Now you get a picture of what does this glorifying mean. The glor- your glorification will mean His glory. It's not an abstract glory apart from the glory of God. You will receive His glory. I don't know if that can, I don't know if I can communicate that. What that says in my own heart. To I will I'm not going to receive some kind of glory. I'm not going to receive a glory that's reserved for me in heaven because I'm this or that. I'm part of the bride. And the only thing the groom can have is the glory of God and the glory of God and His bride. And His bride is God's redeemed people. What an amazing thought. That's the first way though, newness is coming. Nothing will be hidden. Nothing will be shameful. Nothing will be wrong. We will be as translucent as a pure jewel. We will be so rare. And I long for the day We're going to be able to look straight through each other. We're so pure. Look through each other. But that's just one way newness is coming. He's going to make us spiritually and morally beautiful. Number two, we will be made physically and bodily new. Physically and bodily new. Our final hope is not a disembodied spirit. This is something that has been going on the last hundred years in American theology from the pulpit. That somehow we are going to be disembodied spirits. This is not what the teaching of the Bible has taught. The Bible does not teach that the final state of glory is that of a disembodied spirit. Plato, the philosopher, and his kin wanted that way, want it that way because they thought the body was a drag on the freedom of the spirit. It's funny, people think the church is a drag on their freedom of the spirit. It's a shame. But the Bible teaches a very different destiny for God's people. He says, I'm going to make all things new, and that means our bodies too. Our bodies too. Look at verse 4. He says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eye and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things passed away. No more death, no more pain, no more tears. What that means is that a body, as we know, now will be changed. It, 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 because it's going to die. And it hurts. And it cries. And it is, when it's gone, guess what? So's the pain. So's the pain. So are the tears. When the body has gone as we know it here, it's gone. But, but that may sound like Plato. Good riddance to the body of pain. Revelation is very plain though. The scripture is our authority that it points to not good riddance to the body, but that God's going to make it glorified. He's going to make it new, brand new. It's going to be a glorified body like Jesus Christ. Write down Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Our commonwealth is in heaven, Paul says, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change the body of our lowliness to be like the body of His glory, according to the working by which He is able to subdue all things unto Himself. That's what it means in Romans chapter 6. We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. It's a new body. It will never die. It will never hurt. It will never cry except perhaps for joy. Perhaps for joy. There's a lot of people who feel they don't get a fair shake with the body that they have. When bodies were passed out, some people feel like perhaps they were holding the door. Some people have dramatic deformities. Some have lost limbs. Some are paralyzed. Some cannot hear. Some cannot see. Some have extensive skin blemishes. Some have freakish distortions. God has no intention of leaving anybody in that condition if they will trust Him. They may remain in that condition in this life, But in the new one, it will not exist. It will be all new. John mentions this 
in John chapter 9, verse 1 and following. He has no intention of leaving anyone with pain or disability who trusts Him. You may have it here, but it's in heaven that it all passes away. Number three, this next part is the new creation. God's going to make the creation new and glorious. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand something. This world, as we know it, is going to be destroyed. And the heavens, as we understand it now, are going to be destroyed as well. And God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And that is where the promises, the land promises in Jeremiah are fulfilled. That's where it happens. He's not going to restore this earth. He's not going to redeem this earth. He's going to burn it with fire. And it says at the great white throne judgment that while the lost are waiting to be judged and have their moment to say before God all that they want to, they are going to look and they are going to see the heavens and the earth destroyed. And they will realize they have no place to go. And then He will judge them and consign them to hell. And then the angels will be judged and we will judge our angel, and then we will see the liar brought forth in chains, and he and his demons will be consigned forever and ever and ever to suffer without end. And we will inhabit the new heaven and the new earth. And everything that is promised in the Bible to the people of Israel, the elect of God, will be fulfilled because God has said in His covenant, My people, you will be My people, I will be your God. And there will be no sin, there will be no falling away, there will be nothing. It will be eternity of absolutely glorified perfection. It's a new creation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth from the first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. I don't think this means that God picks us up and takes us to a new solar system, folks. Um, he could if He wanted to. But I think the hope of the prophets seems to be that this earth and these heavens will be made new. They are going to be made new after they're destroyed completely. It's amazing to me. This is Pride Month. It is amazing to me that God has set the rainbow in the sky to tell us two things. One, He will never flood the earth again. And two, He will destroy the earth with fire. And they march under the rainbow. The blindness they have that they carry before them the very judgment of God. And it's why we must pray for them and be kind and be gracious that they may be saved. Paul the Apostle said, And some of you were like this, but you were washed. There's none of this born that way, but you were washed. Probably the biggest reason there's such a proliferation of homosexuality in America is single parent homes and absent fathers. I think that's probably the reason the pandemic is so high, that it is so bad. Paul said it this way in Romans 8.21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage of decay and obtain the liberty and the glory of the children of God and the newness and the glory of the church. The children of God is the primary and first. But then God promises that the glory of His people will demand a glorious creation. So not only this, listen to me. We are going to be given the glory of God to become the glorious bride of the glorious Son. And there's no place to live unless it's glorious. And so the creation will be absolutely splendiferous. It will be absolutely as glorious as God is. That's what it means, the new creation. 
Folks are sitting there, they talk about, ah, oh, we've found the, the, the heifer without blemish, and we've got the wood for the new temple. It's stored in a barn. It's somewhere in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I have a Greek word for that. Baloney. All of this stuff to scare people, driven totally by the newspaper. A theology bent upon the newspaper. The reality of the truth is, what God has prepared for us is glory. And we are so consumed with the disglory of this world. That's where Baxter said, I am dying, I'm going to give myself 30 minutes a day to think on these things. And it has changed thousands of Christians' lives because of the manner in which he wrote and he preached through pain. He was fruitful and joyful. So the fallen creation is going to obtain the very freedom from the futility and evil and the pain that the church is given. We're always going to have this problem. But God says, I'm going to make things new. And He's going to make, names, make things new, not for the people that go to church. He's going to make things new for His children. Over there on one of those streets in uh, Denton, there's several of them. There's three of them called Egan. Uh, uh, it's right two blocks south of the courthouse. There's a Methodist church. And it is covered with rainbows. And they're open inclusiveness to people. That is not a church. They can say they're a church. The people can go there and believe they're a church. But where a church is is where a man of God stands in the pulpit and does not preach the culture. He preaches the standard. And it's the Word of God. And God's Word has plenty to say about that kind of lifestyle. It says it right here in this passage. The sexually immoral. Do you know what the word effeminate means? I want you to listen to me. This is free. I got time. Do you know what the word effeminate means? It does not mean a man who walks like this. I call that doing the pony show. You can always tell them, Hi! Our waiter at Texas Roadhouse came up the other night. Hey guys! Three of them sitting there weren't guys. They were girls. Let me tell you what effeminate is. Effeminate means to be a man who is afraid to do the hard thing. He's a quitter. In the 15th and 16th century, the word effeminate was used for a man who was afraid to do or would not do the hard thing. He was a quitter. That's a whole different meaning, don't you think? Well, the Bible says the effeminate aren't going to heaven either. Because what's the hard thing? The hard thing is not to believe in Jesus. You don't have to do anything to do that. It's to live for Him. For me to stop doing what I do would be effeminate. The failure to do the good thing, to do the hard thing. So when God makes new things new, He's going to make it all new He's going to make it spiritually and morally new. He's going to make it new physically. He's going to make a whole new world, a whole new creation. And it's going to be a creation that is fit for our glorified bodies and spirits. And here's the fourth thing. Why focusing on heaven is so good. You will have a new relationship with God. I do believe this also. As I grow as a believer as a Christian man and struggle harder and harder with it, uh, I do believe every day is a new relationship with God. <laughs> um, but I'm going to tell you, look what verse 3 says. He says right here, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. Just like it was in the garden. 
just like it was in the garden. He will walk. Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be His people and God Himself will be them. It is true that God is with us now. It is true that His God is with us now. The Bible tells us that His Spirit dwells within us in 1 Corinthians 6.19. It's in us. Jesus promised never to leave us at the end of the age in Matthew 28, verse 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, I want you to hear this. While we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Here we walk by faith and not by sight. Here we walk by faith and not by sight. So there is a deep and painful sense that we are away from the Lord. That we are away. That He is far off and removed. We don't see what we will one day, right now. But the Bible says this, Jesus said it in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's a promise that something greater is coming for all of us in our relationship to God. How many times will a little child say what we all feel? But Daddy, I can't see him. There was a doctor in Andrews. His name was Dr. Hutchison. Dr. Hutchison was a surgeon. And Dr. Hutch was a legend in the town. And uh, he had a tree, tree, uh, tree trimmer thing. You know, you throw your trees in. <laughs> well, he threw his hand in there too. So that ended his surgical career. But he was, a mar- he, he was a member of the First Baptist Church. We all loved him. But he'd tell a story. He'd say, his kids always asked him, Dad, all you ever talk about is germs and Jesus, and we've never seen either one. Get it? Y'all are... Wow. But Daddy, I can't see Him. That's the real heart cry we should never lose. That's the real heart cry we should never lose. But there is an answer. Look over here at verse 4 in chapter 22. And they will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. Can you imagine? One day, I'm going to see Him. And somebody says, well, I want to see Jesus. He's the one that died for me. I'm going to see Him face to face. The One who loved me before the foundations of the world. The One who knows every sin I've committed, am committing, and will commit, and has put away as far as the east is from the west, will welcome me because He put His faith and belief in me to trust His Son. And when I see Him, I will not ask Him a question. Like, God, why did Paul talk about baptizing the dead? I'm not going to ask Him any questions. I'm going to fall to the ground, physically, in my new body. And whatever cap I have on my head, or crown, or stars, I will throw up at His feet. And I, these are the words He's going to say. He's demonstrated this all through the Old Testament. You ready? These are the words He's going to say. Two words. Get up. Because I will bear the glory of the Son. You will bear the glory of the Son. I meant it the other day when I said, I hope that my little outhouse shack in heaven is right by the gates of glory. 
I want to watch the people come in and see God. Max Licato and Andrews Boy wrote his best book. It's called The Applause of Heaven. And he opens the book with this story. He was at the airport and people were getting off the plane. And it's back when, before 9-11, and you could actually go into the air side of the airport, which was really fun because you could go look at airplanes. And the family could go there and, and wait to see, wait to see their loved one get off the plane. See Mimi and Mumu get off the airplane. Or Lolly and Pop or Nanny and Pawpaw get off the plane. Or some little child's traveling alone and come and see their, their parents. Well, there was this man who had been gone for some time and his family had missed him so terribly much and many things he had undergone that were difficult and finally the day of reunion was going to happen and the whole family went to the airport and was standing there at gate number 13 and the door flung open and out began to come the passengers from the plane but then the moment there was this pause and the terminal erupts into applause. Because here comes this man who had been gone so long being rolled up in a wheelchair. And his family was standing there just clapping and clapping because he was there. If you would just give yourself some time to focus on glory, think about hearing the applause of heaven when you get there. Because it is surely going to happen. And it's not going to be an applause that by God you made it. Whoo! No. It's going to be the applause. Not of God. It's not going to be the applause of the angels. It will be the applause of the redeemed. And we will not be applauding each other. We will be applauding and singing to the one who died for me. The angels can't even do that. We will be the greatest gifts of heaven. You know why? Because He's going to give us to His Son. Behold, I make all things new. Focus on these things. And maybe, maybe your light will shine brighter and maybe we'll put off a little more heat. Amen? Would you bow your heads?